This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everybody, Jeff Kasuf here, host of Kicking Back. You've probably gotten used to this podcast being uh, a fun and lighthearted conversation about soccer and right now there are far more important things happening than soccer so um, these upcoming episodes starting with this one there'll be people you know from the soccer world uh, but certainly um, we'll be talking about much more important things that, that are happening in the world than just some soccer memories um, talking about racial inequality and players experiences with it and how they're working to better the world around them. Uh, we'll be talking about what they've experienced uh, in their careers and how they're working to, to help change some of the issues in the world. Um, you know, it's worth acknowledging up front uh, there's no short-term fix, there's no singular answer. And, and even for myself, you know, uh, I have a lot to learn and, and be better at. Doing these podcasts is just a small step and part of that. Um, and, and I'm learning as I go, as many of you listening probably are. Uh, the next few podcasts, certainly, and, and, you know, not just short term, but, but longer term, um, will be addressing that. So um, this particular podcast is with Yael Averbush West. You know her from many things, co-executive director of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association on the Athletes Council, uh, U.S. Soccer Athlete Council, which is currently, you know, has been in the news recently uh, over U.S. soccer's policy to uh, ban kneeling during the national anthem. Um, so we talk a bit about that, a bit about her work with the Players Association and, and how players are are coming together and, and speaking about this and, and planning um, to make a, a change and um, you know even how this this hits her affects her you know very directly and, and personally uh, so hopefully this is a productive conversation uh, the first of, of many we, we have more already recorded that are, are coming your way um, in which we plan to, to highlight black players' voices and, and their their thoughts and, and their words and emotions. Um, hopefully that, that makes a change for the better in some small way in, in our part of the world here of soccer that um, seems very, seems not so important at the moment. So um, hope that, that you enjoy this conversation in, in whatever form it can be enjoyed given the, uh, the subject more so that uh, there's something productive that comes out of it and uh, something to be learned coming out of it. So 
Uh, this is Kicking Back with Yael Leverbush West. Uh, I'm Jeff Kasuf. Uh, thank you for, for listening to the podcast, and uh, hopefully we can we can continue to bring some some of these podcasts, uh, some of these productive conversations your way. It's Jeff Kasuf here on the Kicking Back Pod with Yael Averbush West. Uh, thank you for joining me. Yes, of course. Um, here, you know, we've been doing these Kicking Back Pods. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more casual and lighter by nature. Obviously, um, you know, it's it's been a very trying, I guess, couple months, couple weeks, um, even here. Um, so, so wanted to talk about a, a range of things, and and I think you know maybe if I can introduce you, but you've got many roles, um, as as some people listening know. But um, and, and for those who who don't know, maybe um, yeah, I'll played. WPS and NWSL, U.S. Women's National Team, um, is is co-executive director of, of the NWSL Players Association and um, Technique Football, as we know, the, the app, but but also, you know, maybe starting out here relevant to the, the current conversation. Um, you're in the U.S. Soccer Athlete Council, um, which this week here that we're talking um, was was in the news uh, or was part of this conversation of, of um, what's going on with you know, in the wider world, but as it relates to, to U.S. soccer um, and a policy that was put in place three years ago by U.S. soccer, this the ban, um, policy 6041, banning kneeling during the national anthem. Um, and I think we'll post this this statement in the article that we post this podcast, but essentially calling for that to be repealed and, and an apology made um, to black athletes, to fans, um, and to, and going forward to have a diversity um a diversity um, committee and, and plans for diversity. So, um, you know, really want to talk a lot about about that and, and maybe the wider conversation, obviously, that, that's led to it. Um, I guess first, can you kind of talk me through what you can, obviously, the statements out there, but um, that that statement and kind of where, where the Athletes Council is coming from um, in a time, you know, where uh, racial injustice and, and um, you know, the topic is is front and center, as it should be all the time, really. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'll speak to a little bit about how, you know, the background behind uh, that statement in particular from the Athlete Council, and then obviously mixed in here talking, like, um, a lot of the things I'll express are my own opinion. So I'll mm-hmm. try to clarify where uh, where I'm speaking beha- on behalf of the council and what happened there with that statement. But then obviously, um, within the council, we have individuals uh, with with their own opinions and, and, you know, I have mine. So I think, you know, we as a council had a a really long and very enlightening conversation with athletes from uh, a variety of the national teams. You know, we have representatives from the beach national team, from the Paralympic national team, the men's, the women's. And so um, in addition to our representatives from each of those teams, we actually had others join the call. Um, some black athletes, because just to be quite frank, our athletes council does not have a black athlete. And so we're a group of, you know, non-black people speaking about something that um, largely has to do with black lives and black representation. And so we did hear from um, a number of current and former athletes from within U.S. soccer in terms of having this conversation And really, I think, you know, the bottom line is that U.S. soccer um, has stifled the the voices of peaceful protest um, through this protocol. And we don't feel that it's appropriate uh, to do that. And, 
in addition to that, I think, you know, we see right now in this current landscape, so many organizations talking openly and actively about the action they're going to take to, um, to, you know, whether it's donating money, whether it's inclusion of black voices in leadership, whether, where there's not. And I think that our goal is obviously to make a statement about how we feel about um, the ability of athletes to use their platform to protest peacefully, but also uh, what U.S. soccer has planned to do. And we are going to continue a very active role. We've, we've kind of had a lot of conversations surrounding that as well, is that we want to have a very active role in holding U.S. soccer accountable moving forward and working with them to provide um, ideas and opportunities to uh, diversify the voices and to really focus on making positive change. Maybe this would stray into sort of what you said it would be your personal opinion here for for going forward. But what, how do you think you address that? I mean, even acknowledging there that the athletes' council doesn't have representation really, you know, beyond white athletes. How do you address that at an athlete level? Even at a, you know, how do you expect U.S. soccer to maybe address that? Yeah, I mean, it's a problem. Um, it's a mm-hmm. problem that a group of only well, not only white people, a group of non-black people is having conversations that include things that affect uh, the black community. And I think that uh, whether it's the Athletes Council um, and but also U.S. soccer's leadership, you know, I kind of put this on Twitter, but if you go to the U.S. soccer AGM and you look around the room, the room does not look like a cross-section of what our country looks like. Uh, it's predominantly male and very predominantly uh, white males. Um, or, or white people. And so I think the first first thing is that um, we needed diverse voices of, you know, represented in the leadership of the organization. And without that, it's very hard. It's, it's very hard and it's not appropriate for a group of white people to be making decisions that um, that affect, you know, everybody. And so I think, you know, whether it's, um, you know, it's a really, really pe- women, people of color, just diversifying the leadership, um, I think is a very important step. And then also, you know, I think something good was brought up on the Athletes Council call, and this is something I've been thinking about on a personal level as well, is that there are people whose life work is to work with organizations and to help make these changes. Um, a lot of us, unfortunately, and this is, I'm ashamed to say this of myself and of many white people, especially, are new to this conversation. And this is not a new problem in our country by any means. This has been here literally since the inception of our country, and it hasn't gotten better in a lot of ways. And in some ways, it's even gotten worse. And so the fact that a lot of us are just arriving to this conversation, or this is just uh, becoming part of our consciousness, is is quite a... Um, it's quite an indication of our, our privilege and our oblivion and naivete. And so I think um, for me, I try to learn from reading and, and listening to things out there that are put out uh, primarily by black people. And don't I don't pretend to know or have answers. And I think the same thing can be done by organizations is that there are organizations set up. There are black leaders who are trained and who think about this every single day of their lives because they have no choice. Um, to to help others to understand and to do better at it. So I would implore U.S. Soccer to um, you know to hire somebody to help th- them make this transition into being a more diverse organization and an organization that can create a positive change when it comes to racial justice and doing the right things. Yeah, I mean, I have to you know personally acknowledge too what, what you've said is that you know I think that um, I guess from a place of privilege that you know I have among many people have not really properly, you know, addressed this or understood that, you know, this is an everyday 
occurrence. And, and even though we're talking about it in, in this current time where I think this is um, certainly in, in our lifetime, I think the, the level of protest and the level of attention um, is, is at a peak or hopefully not a peak because that would suggest, you know, that it, hopefully it would go up from here as well. But um, how, you know, I guess it's kind of working through the process of, of addressing that and, and the different ways, which you just mentioned some, um, have you been thinking about, um, uh, you know, that's the athlete council level, that's the soccer level. And I think that soccer snapshot is not just at the top with us soccer, but goes all the way down into the youth levels. Right. I mean, that's, it's, it's a problem throughout the sport and, and obviously it may be a snapshot too of not just the sport, but what we're seeing in the country and the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the bottom line is that um, this is something that uh, Black people experience every single day and have in many different ways tried to alert people to. I mean, from everything from trying to have simple conversations to minor complaints to uh, kneeling at protests to, you know, other actions. And and um, it's been all too easy for us as white people to ignore that, which is shame on us. Um, I think, you know, I feel... Um, that these are these are certainly not new things for many of the people who we as a players play with and against. Um, are, we're coached by black coaches who deal with things on a daily basis where they don't um, feel comfortable speaking up or um, you know I've seen I've seen all kinds of things. And so I think really now is the time uh, to listen and to uh, try to deepen our understanding of why, uh, why we're in the current situation we're in and what the reality is for the players we play with and against who are black, the coaches who are coaching this world who are black, the referees who are black, the, um, you know, anybody in our soccer community, we're talking about the soccer community, but obviously in the black community in general, but I think, you know, we do have a black soccer community and we haven't heard them. Um, and so I think to give our black players, you know, I, with the players association, especially hearing from the black players, what is your experience like? Um, what are the things that we should know as as your white allies? And so I think these are such important conversations. And the first step is simply um, listening to understand because we haven't up until now. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like those conversations are being had now that they're being that they're productive now in a way that can hopefully anyway, you know, sustain going forward? Um, yeah, I think I, I think this has certainly sparked uh, many many conversations, and I think you know if if anybody is looking to have these types of conversations, uh, social media for me even I would say uh, has been hugely instrumental in helping to educate me and open my eyes to things I didn't know. Um, so it's having the in person conversations, which I think are really important, or not in person. Obviously, we're not all on Zoom or whatever it is, but um, but having the the conversation, but then also reading and looking at the things that people are saying and posting and, um, and in kind of ingesting that and just sitting with it. You know, I don't, I certainly realize myself how much I didn't know and how many voices I hadn't heard. And I realize that because now, um, you know, unfortunately, we're just starting the conversation. It's certainly the start. Um you know, you represent, um, you're on the athlete council, uh, the, the national women's soccer league players association. Um, so, you know, you represent a lot of folks, but you know, that, that's at a kind of a, I don't know, committee is not the word, but a larger level, but even at a personal level here, I mean, you know, your husband, Aaron West, who I think many people listening to this probably know, and, and from his work in the soccer community, he's black. Uh, what, what are these, 
conversations like? I mean, this is this is obviously quite personal as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because these are some of these conversations are things that Aaron and I have had over the years because he has had to educate me on things that I simply uh, was oblivious to, and I became aware of my white privilege very much so in um, through my relationship with Aaron. But you know what this really kind of scary and sad thing is to me is that I realizing now how much I still had no idea about and have no idea about um, and things that Aaron literally has to think about every single day of his life. When we go outside together, the things that he's contemplating and that are causing him stress and anxiety that I uh, quite often can choose to ask him about, I can choose to engage in the conversation or I can choose not to think about it. And I think, you know, there are things that I, that um, many people might be learning right now that I have been aware of through, like Aaron and I talk about this and have over the years, what I thought was a lot, but it's not, it's not a lot because whenever our, you know, our conversation every couple weeks came up, well, no, that's something Aaron lives with every single day. So I realize even now, um, you know, I have black family and I literally haven't even been aware of what it's like for them every single day of their lives. So I realize I still have a lot of work to do, but certainly um, this is something that is, you know, front and center in my life. And I, I plan to keep it that way as, as I'm hoping and assuming a lot of white people do at this point. Right. And yeah, I think something that, that everyone I think is probably, or many people are in in similar position of, of needing to understand that it is, you know, a daily, um, certainly from my end as well, that, um, you know, I think, um, it's been trying to figure out, you know, how to be better um, in, in every way. So, um, and should mention too, you know, congrats to you and Aaron on on the news. Um, Thank you. Exciting to, to have a, a baby coming. Um, yes. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, I think I should say too, like, I think he's done some really great work too. And, and maybe you've been able to to see some of that in, in the space of making sure that, you know, in the soccer space that, um, and something that that I could learn from as someone in media that the representation of voices that we present to fans to readers um, you know t- that we put forth and, and that we interview and how we talk to them needs to be needs to be better to to make sure that um, those voices are being heard and, th- and that there's just a more accurate representation of of the actual space is that is that something that you've been able to kind of see from I mean you both we're in the soccer world in different sort of spheres of it, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think Aaron has a very unique uh, place in the soccer world as a black man who uh, has a a very deep knowledge and respect for women's soccer in addition to the men's game. So it's kind of, you know, it's something you um, unfortunately don't see. So, and I think that too, you know, when Aaron goes to interview a player or to cover something in the game, he um, he shows up and he looks like one of the players. I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it. So uh, people feel very comfortable with him and comfortable talking to him on a, a more relaxed level than I think, you know, sometimes if you have a black player and a, a white guy shows up in a suit and tie, well, it's like, this person doesn't look like me. They don't look like a soccer player. They don't look like what I look like. And so I'm going to treat it like an interview rather than I'm just talking with a friend. So I think Aaron has a really unique platform to have conversations that maybe are, are uncomfortable for other uh, media to kind of get to. Um, and I do want to point out that, you know, this is like a little bit off subject of, of the, the exact question you asked, but something really interesting that I uh, I'm, I'm ashamed that all these things took me too long to think about, but I think that a lot of times 
we see what's going on as uh, that we are supporting black people. And this is a problem for black people that we as white people want to help with. And this is a white person's problem. Like this is a situation that we created as white people. And I think that realization has really sunk, started to sink in for me to, to reframe how I've thought about all of this is that um, this is our problem to solve. And so I, I hope that, um, you know, a lot of white people out there, I hope that all white people out there are starting to contemplate these things. Um, and especially if you're listening, you know, there's so much good stuff on social media that you can learn from. And uh, you mentioned players, that that, that is a, a space. I mean, there's obviously, um, I think we could talk for a, a long time here, um, but, but on a player level, um, the NWSL, which you played in for a long time, you know, executive co-director, co-executive director of the PA, um, shaping up to be the first league back among team sports. It's a little bit technical, but but the point being that there's a platform there. And I, I know um, players are trying to figure out how to best use that effectively and, and in a in an authentic way. Um, I don't know how much you can speak to what that looks like yet, but if you can, um, you know, maybe that, but also just what have these conversations looked like at, at a league level? How have you tried to involve as many voices as possible to take advantage of that platform, which has a national TV game, has maybe some attention that isn't always there with other sports still not back? Yeah, um, the bottom line is that as a players association, we want to support our players in whatever statements and whatever way they would like to raise awareness, protest, protest, whatever the players want to do. And so, a couple important things is one, you know, the league wants to work with us on this, and we we you know I say this publicly all the time, but we have a great relationship with the league and a very uh, we have a lot of transparent conversations. And right now, especially, we've really had to come together to make this tournament happen and. Um, at the moment, we are working through with the group of players and the league the best way to create a platform for the message that the players want to get out and how the players would like to, you know, who the players would like to support, whether whether it's an organization or what they want to do. And so we've had, we had a, a call that we invited anyone from the league, all the players who wanted to join the call to speak on um, and to, to listen in. And, and it was really um, enlightening and a really, I felt that it was um, a really meaningful conversation. You know, I was going to say it wasn't a good conversation because these are hard topics and this is not a good topic. It was a really meaningful, powerful conversation surrounding the types of messaging that the players would like to represent. And as a players association, really, um, Brooke Elby, my executive director, and I talked about that we want to hear from the players and we want to, we'll do our best to amplify whatever message they decide they want to, you know, they want to um, send out. So really our, our role will be to share that with the league, to ho hopefully partner with the league on it, to see if CBS will be involved, uh, Nike, the other league sponsors, basically give the players the biggest platform we can to spread their message. Mm -hmm. And beyond the tournament too, um, this is a question that I've been asking players that I've spoken with. Um, what What can be done um, from the team, from the league, not that they can do to, to not to put, as you just said, that this is a white problem, not to put the burden on, on black players, but what can be done from a, a team level, a league level? Maybe you can speak to a PA level. I can speak to a media level, but to empower them to, to feel like they're being heard that these, these are, you know, real changes that are, are taking place. 
Yeah. To be honest, that's a conversation we need to have with them. Mm-hmm. You know, we've dealt with kind of what can we do surrounding the tournament because that's the big platform we have. But we did make it very clear on the call and the conversation was surrounding that we'll decide on something immediate to do uh, surrounding the tournament, but then also how we want to proceed um, long term. And I think that's a, such an important question you asked is that, you know, what happens after? This is not a one time thing. It's not a one time statement. This is a statement of how we want to behave from here on out. And so that's absolutely a conversation we need to have with the players. And I don't know the answer. And it's something we're going to ask them directly. And that we hopefully over time will continue to ask the players because in every way we want to make sure we're supporting our players. And especially uh, right now and moving forward, making sure we're supporting our black players in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess to, to the point of, of sustaining it, um, of sustaining this, this conversation at the very least and, and making progress, um, do you do you have an idea of what that? I don't know if any of us do, but what that might look like in in a shorter, longer term. I mean, we said right before we kind of came on here, this is a conversation that's going to be ongoing. Uh, yeah, you know, what? I don't know, and mm-hmm. I. But the thing I keep coming back to, and I think this is a really great point, and actually I've heard this a number of times, but on our player call, it was Pino who um, brought up this point: is that, and I mentioned it before, is that there are organizations and there are people whose life's work is to to do this. And so I would defer to them and I will personally try to follow and align myself with organizations who have been doing this for years and will continue to do this for years because I don't I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't taking enough action. I wasn't taking enough, uh, putting enough attention into this prior to this. And I'm, I will be honest about that. And I still could do more and I certainly need to do more moving forward. But I think what I plan to do is trust those who study this and to, and know how to make lasting change because I certainly, uh, don't begin to pretend to know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, um, certainly share that, you know, that, um, that fault, I guess, of, of, um, you know, even to this podcast here, I think, you know, just better using the the space and the platform to, to have these conversations and, and actually thinking about it more, um, more consciously, I guess, rather than, um, yeah, you know, not thinking about it enough or at all. Um, no, I, and I appreciate you asking, I mean, those are difficult questions and I, I even admit these are uncomfortable questions to answer because it's uncomfortable to talk about, but that's why I think it's so important. And so I appreciate you asking tough questions and, and, uh, the platform to speak to them. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I guess it's worth saying, I mean, they're uncomfortable even to, to be asking, but, but as it's been pointed out uh, by many, I think on, on social media and even in conversations that I've had, um, you know, with, with black players in the league that, you know, um, who just, you know, some of them have said, this is our, our every day. And, and, um, you know, one comment that, that I heard was that, you know, they're not exempt from, uh, they're not, they're not exempt from what's going on, basically that, you know, this is, people might think that this is happening in a certain city um, with protests or that pro athletes are somehow not experiencing this, but they, they are um, as well. So um, I, I guess, you know, again, we could talk about this for, for quite a bit. I want to ask you, um, as well, you know, we've talked about or maybe alluded to the tournament that's that's coming up, the the Challenge Cup for the NWSL. Um, you know, there there are other challenges too in the world at the moment with the virus, um, with COVID nineteen. Obviously, that has kind of created this situation to to have a tournament rather than a full season. Um, I know you've spoken at length of kind of how that got done, but um, maybe the the long and short of it 
you know, is that there's, there's a tournament and there is some NWSL soccer this year. And, um, you know, the, the big thing I think for me and, and I'm sure for you, but that's worth highlighting is the guarantees that the players were able to, to have, to be able to feel safe doing, you know, participating and, and still having their salaries covered for the year, um, benefits, housing, even if they didn't play. So, um, could you speak to that just a little bit in terms of, you know, we're seeing with MLB, with some other places, some other leagues, um, even MLS, where the relations there between league and players association have not exactly been friendly at times. And, and even during a pandemic, and the NWSL doesn't even have a collective bargaining agreement and you all were able to secure some of these guarantees. What was that process like in short? Yeah, you know, so to give a little background, I think that NWSL and women's soccer is in a unique situation in the sports world. And that was actually why I got involved with even thinking about a players association, because I felt that it was so important to do it in a really intentional and particular way, meaning we don't have any room in women's soccer to be battling each other at the moment. And I think we've seen that in a lot of ways is that things are fragile. And for all of us who have been part of leagues or seen leagues come and go, we feel it even more. Um, And certainly things are solidifying themselves. There's been really positive growth within the league. But I feel very strongly that up until this point, there has been no room for battling factions. You know, you look at uh, some of the bigger leagues and there's massive money coming in and things to quote unquote fight over. We don't, we simply don't have that. We're all in the same boat. We are all um, struggling to make this work. And, uh, and we hope, you know, in five years, that that statement won't even make sense to players. But so um, the positive spinoff of that has been that we have a really wonderful relationship with the league. And so in talking to them about uh, some of the guarantees that were kind of our non-negotiables for if players are going to participate in the tournament, these were things that the league wanted to do for the players as well, because we have that trust and um, they know that we only come asking for things that are absolutely necessary because we get it. You know, um, when there's more and more resources to go around, we certainly will make sure that the players get their part of that. But the, quite frankly, there's not the resources to go around. So what everyone's goal is, is to be able to do something successful this year to keep all of the players safe um, and secure and to make sure that everybody can um, suffice during and after the tournament, as well as going into next year, making sure, you know, the league is set up for success. So I think that being said, it's benefited us in our work with the league because um, we didn't have to convince them the value of anything we asked for, for the players. Uh, We simply needed it guaranteed, which took a little bit of back and forth, but uh, they were, they were able to do that. So, you know, the, the pay throughout the year, you know, honoring their contracts, which means the pay, the housing, the benefits, all that. Also, we had a, we're having a weekly calls with the league to go over all of the protocols and understanding the processes in place as they, as they come out, being asking questions on the players' behalf. And today we, we spoke specifically about the mothers in the league who will be bringing their kids. And I have to tell you, I'm very impressed by the setup. I was joking on the call. I said, maybe I should go as one of the players' kids. Because <laughs> it's like a very, very good setup, extreme attention to detail. Um, and that's something that's important to the league and obviously very important to us. So we've had a really, um, a really positive uh, communication with them surrounding this tournament. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, the, um, the being able to have uh, children with the players, have children with them, and then a, a caregiver as well was... I think the thing that maybe got the most attention outside of the the actual contracts um, in terms of, of honoring that, I'm sure safety 
at large for everybody. I mean, several several hundred players and, and then, you know, double that for staff and team staff, broadcast, everything um, was, was front and center. Um, you know, this is, I guess, an unprecedented time, certainly in our lifetime of, of what's going on. Um, how, what, what have you heard from, from players in terms of um, that, that feeling of, you know, having that safety? What, what kind of assurances did the league give you and, and how have those conversations been going on that weekly basis? Yeah, I mean, I would say the number one concern of of the players was the was the safety and 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 of the league. And so, if those weren't aligned, if the league didn't feel it was as important as the players, we would have we would have had a serious problem. But I think the league said from the very beginning, uh, this is our number one. We would not have even considered moving forward with plans for this should the medical task force have not said, you know, we think we can execute this well. And that that's also an important thing to remember, I think, is that the league is really not making any of the decisions having to do with the health and safety protocol. It's being done by experts and they're consulting with experts literally on a daily basis. So for us, um, we, we understood as a players association that all of the answers weren't going to be laid out as of, okay, there's going to be a tournament. We have every medical protocol 100% laid out. What was important for us was to understand the processes by which the league was working with the medical task force and how the decisions were being made. And we felt very strongly that um, they were, that they were really good processes in place, which is very important because that's what our weekly calls are for to get the updates and to ask questions and make sure we're getting the answers as they're available. So there weren't every, there wasn't every answer available, but the players had a lot of questions understandably to uh, out of, you know, out of the gate and our first um, priority was to make sure that the, we felt good about the processes in place and the people making those decisions. And then it's been from there to get the answers to those questions um, on a weekly basis. And we've gotten, I mean, we've made huge progress in terms of understanding details after detail after detail. And <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I can't imagine that it could be done more thoroughly than what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those listening, I'm just pulling up the, you know, the, the exact details are June 27th to July 26th, the NWSL Challenge Cup. It's in Utah, um, two venues in the greater Salt Lake City area, um, which is, is essentially supplementing the season and, and um, you know, depending on what happens in the fall, I guess. But, um, you know, th- this one thing that came up is, or I think a key part of this too, is the momentum from 2019. Um, sustaining some of that, obviously the the PNG and secret sponsorship for this tournament is um, I think, you know, I come from some Olympic media background too with NBC that PNG is about as big of a player in the Olympic world, which is about as big as it gets in the sports world. So, um, you know, that's a significant thing. And, and Lisa Baird, the new commissioner um, coming from the Olympic world. So, um, you know, this gives, maybe it's a bridge, so to speak, at least commercially and maybe even for players on the field to, to get to 2021 Um, from a PA perspective um, just from a player perspective, really, what have you heard from players in terms of how they maybe want to get there? I mean, certainly, you know, one month of playing has its own challenges, but is one month out of, out of 11 in the year. And it's, it's almost a lost year. I mean, what, what are the ways that can kind of help players, bridge that gap in terms of performance that they need some of them going into a a new Olympic year now in 2021. Yeah. You know, I think the athlete mindset has really helped a lot of the players get through this. I mean, the bottom line is that during all of this, the players have, a, you know, 
there's health and safety, number one. And number two is like, okay, well, within the rules, what can we do to get better? And so it's literally been like players doing workouts at home, figuring out, you know, all of the guidelines so that they can stay fit, stay ready. So really the mindset is always on like, what can we be doing right now? And now it's very much so focused on getting ready for the tournament. Uh, so I think everybody now that they've been back playing are really focused on what's upcoming because it's a very important tournament. I mean, it, to be seen as individuals uh, for the team rankings for next year, I mean, it's, it's essentially like the players are going to a, you know, a world cup or Olympics now. So I think everybody is very focused on that. We have had some questions and obviously there are thoughts about what, what will happen after. Um, I think the bottom line is that the league doesn't know. So there's no guarantee that nothing will happen or guarantee that something will happen. Um, you know, we have talked to players who have been asking me about, you know, going on loan elsewhere and things like that. So there will be players who choose to go on loan. And if the, uh, no more happens here, they'll have, you know, the opportunity to play games elsewhere. So I think kind of um, everybody is focused on the task at hand uh, very much so, but certainly that that will be a puzzle that the day after the tournament will all the pieces will be laying out to be solved yeah do you have any uh, i don't mean to make this a loaded question but you know i love to throw some some bigger questions at you i guess um do you have any specific hopes for what this tournament will be or mean given the the spotlight the platform and and the ability to come back and, and even what we we're talking about earlier what what could be done with that spotlight do you have any specific vision of what you hope to see out of this tournament yeah, you know, it's really interesting, and I haven't um, said this before, but I think that actually the this is a really, in a strange way, very positive thing to happen this year for the league, um, and that sounds so so backwards and messed up, but uh, hear me out here before, before anyone judges. Um, I think that to have a kind of a short-term tournament with some big sponsors on board who plan to continue on with the league, obviously, is really important to keep uh, women's soccer in this country in the spotlight, in the media. Realistically, American fans love playoffs. They love tournaments. It's It's been hard. The big challenge of NWSL is getting people to pay attention week in and week out. So by default, we're solving that and, and giving a short-term tournament. And then the other reality is there need, there's a lot of planning that needs to be done to really make the most of the platform that women's soccer has right now. And I mean, Lisa Baird, I can't say enough how wonderful of a job she came, she's done coming in, but she came in and then within days, everything got shut down and this is a disaster. Um, you know, there's going to be uh, expansion next year. There's, there's a lot going on. And I think that it's, a positive thing for the league to have a little bit of time to regroup and to do some planning and to make sure that, um, you know, they create really good, deep lasting relationships with the sponsors on board that this, you know, the season schedule gets set and we can all look forward to next year and have a little bit more time to plan that. Cause usually, you know, it's been kind of like, uh, everything spiraling and happening so quickly that it's been hard for the league to get on top of things. And um, hopefully this will provide a little bit of time where Lisa can take a breath. She can, she can formulate her plan. She can get, you know, everybody working underneath her on board with that and the league can move forward from there. So my hope is that the tournament will be really exciting. It'll be everything we hoped for, which I think I don't doubt you can't get all those players and that kind of attention within a one month period and it not be exciting. It's impossible. Um, but then really, I think the biggest kind of maybe not talked about piece here is what can happen with the rest of that time. Although it's not ideal to kind of not have games televised or whatever it is, if that happens, it could be a very important planning period. 
Yeah, all games on CBS All Access, big CBS televising the opener and the final, which um, still fulfills, I mean, it's the same as what the season-long contract was going to be with with two games on um, on broadcast television, which hasn't happened before for, for any U.S. Women's Pro League, uh, sport, soccer league anyway. Um, yeah, the, the day after Lisa Baird started was the day that the sports world essentially shut down first with the NBA and then um, I think within about 48 hours, most everything else. So um, I, I have heard some some f- coaches, some others around the league have said to me they, they hope that this is a yearly thing, this Challenge Cup or some version of a, a cup competition midseason. Um, I don't know if, you know, maybe Lisa wants to take some of my ideas. I have some suggestions for maybe some prize money, a, a playoff spot next year. I'd love to see some something else on the line that uh, the winner gets out of this to kind of carry over to 2021. But um, maybe it'll spark some ideas, like you said, for for the planning that, that – something that could be sustained but yeah I, I hadn't even thought of that actually to be honest but I do think it's exciting like the more you know we used to have an all-star game with yeah. uh Dub, yeah. you know all of this takes it, it, immense I can't even imagine the planning that goes into it so um but but I do think um things like this like the the playoffs the tournament the challenge cup you know it sounds exciting and people get really into it so it's a good thing yeah um well I want to make sure too that that for our listeners here, who, who hopefully you know many of you uh, maybe new to the the space and, and enjoying the conversation, uh, you know we always talk on on this pod, which I think this one's a bit different, but I want to make sure you know we talk kind of career a little bit with uh, with players and and ex players, and um, I guess you're always a player, right? But um, yeah, I still consider myself. Like- <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Yael had a career. Um, you know, drafted the Sky Blue FC, has played. Uh, in NWSL most recently for the rain, I think two iterations of the rain name ago when, when Seattle was still uh, in the name yeah. and then, and then FC Kansas city where you were, uh, I think you've said is the most challenging or, or most interesting where you were put in a center back spot, right. Which was, was very different. Um, you know, I, we don't have a ton of time left, I guess. So I'll ask you more generally if um, you know, a lot of things that you've done in your career and now doing a lot away from the field, um, what, what jumps out to you here, maybe from, from on the field of, of North Carolina, you know, it goes way back. I mean, youth national teams, what, is there something that you kind of hold near and dear to heart still now that you have some reflection time? Oh yeah. Uh, too much. But, uh, <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's been really interesting. Um, I've had a very interesting transition because first of all, I didn't plan, I haven't retired. Um, yeah. I don't know if I ever will to be very honest. I don't know if I'll play again, but I don't know if I'll, I'm not retired. Um, I had to step away due to um, ulcerative colitis, a health condition. And so wasn't really, the last couple of years of my career were not like, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, plan like, okay, I'm going to play this next season and then be done or anything like that. I literally couldn't play anymore. Um, and at the same time, I continued to kind of train and I was playing my winter pickup training group. And so I still very much consider myself a player and love the game. And I think it's been very interesting to see what things I feel very much at peace about um, not participating and what things kind of spark the like, oh, I got I had a I had a dream uh, the other night that I was in one of Blackco's training sessions training as a defender, which for me like became probably the most enjoyable training I ever did in my entire career. Like training next to Becky Sauerbrunn in Blackco's sessions uh is like a treat 
Like I would, I would do that every day of my life if I could. Uh, so I had a, I hadn't thought about it in a long time and I had some dream where I was doing one of Blacko's defending sessions and it like really, I woke up and I felt like really sad because I really, really missed it. Um, so there've been a couple things like that. Uh, or I saw this video on social media of a guy out training under some kind of spotlight with his music on, like doing some footwork dribbling drill. And I was like, oh, that, that got me a little bit. Like I, I love that. So there've been some moments where I certainly feel really nostalgic or I miss being around my teammates and things like that. But I would say overall, um, one, I'm very, very involved in the soccer world still, which has allowed me a nice transition. And, and also I realized um, my life was incredibly stressful in a way that was no longer healthy. And I now have felt the um, kind of the relief of some of that stress falling off of my shoulders in a way that I didn't realize how deep seated and how many layers there were until I could not move and live in one place for a while. And I didn't have to train if I didn't feel well or whatever it was. And it, um, you know, it wasn't right for me anymore. So I have very, um, very mixed emotions about it. And certainly I'm sure throughout the next, however many years I'll, I'll see something, see someone training or have a memory of something and it'll get me just like that. I don't think that'll ever end. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I have talked about ulcerative colitis a bit, which, which I also have. And and I think you've probably been even more open than me. I don't know if I've even said that in a public space really. Now now you did. (laughs) uh, Yeah. So I, um, I remember that I discovered I had it while playing college soccer at a, you know, a much lower level than UNC, but, but even, you know, at that in, in D3 and, and, um, showing up to training, you know, it, it actually kind of occurred, I don't know, occurred, discovered, whatever the term is in season. And, and it became, uh, very difficult. So, I mean, the, the idea of, I guess I'm trying to help, you know, people understand too, of, of the level that you played at, which was right up to the international level. Um, you know, that's, that's remarkable really for, for, you know, I know firsthand kind of what, what it can do and, and how it affects you. And, um, you know, I think, I don't know if we tell those stories enough of something like that, that, that you're going through. I know, you know, I'm still amazed, like Shannon Box played with lupus, which my aunt has, and, and she can hardly walk and sometimes. And, um, so, you know, I think, you know, I'll point out for you that that was, you know, that's a, a pretty incredible thing that um, I think people should realize too. For um, as you said, you're not retired, but um, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, the people who are either roommates with me or roommates with me on road trips definitely got an inside glance at, <laughs> at it. But uh, but yeah, it, it was a uh, it was brutal, and I certainly ignored ignored a lot of uh, warning signs that I probably should have stopped earlier and maybe wouldn't have ended up having to actually stop playing if I had kind of dealt with it sooner, but you don't mm-hmm. know until you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we'll wrap it up quickly. I mean, is the, the mental side of, of that, I mean, anything in life, people talk about closure. Um, you know, I do a lot of interviews like this, obviously, and, and think about like, you know, to your point of the, those memories you have, like, I mean, I have those from a college level, a high school level, you've got them, you know, maybe, maybe it's something that could have gone a different way at a pro level, a championship or something. Um, you know, that is, uh, the, the mental side of that, I think is, is often overlooked. And maybe I bring it up a lot on pods like this, but you know, how do you, how do you deal with that in a transition sense to, to sort of just switching off one day or, or changing roles one day? Yeah. Oh, I'll ne- I will never not deal with that, I think. Um, and that's part of the reason I, I won't retire. Um, I 
from the time I started playing this sport and I wanted to be a professional player until I think forever from now, my mindset will always be the same. I will never start thinking about the one tryout or one game opportunity I had that I could have done better or whatever it was. And so I think um, I, and that's why too, I, I love to continue to train and play in whatever, whatever, um, you know, environment I'm able to, even if it's just kind of my off season group, because I, I genuinely love the game and love trying to get better. Even if it's getting better, like after giving birth, trying to get back to being able to play, like for me, that's part of the fun process of like working on something. And I would say, you know, through the work I do with the players association and in my business with technique football, I'm um, getting to relive the experience through others in a really interesting way and kind of be a guide and mentor to others who are at different phases along their journey. So I have connected myself to this forever and I don't, I don't think I will ever get past having that nostalgia, those moments of uh, whatever, whatever it's the thought of like, Oh, I wish it went differently or wow. I wish I could do that again. It was wonderful. Uh, that's all probably with me forever. I've accepted <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Techni. I was going to before we, we signed off. Obviously, I think a lot of people, um, I know you've been busy. A lot of people are uh, in this time of isolation, turning to uh, um, isolation training is, is the correct term for it, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, we just say individual training individual because training. I don't know. I don't know what's like, it's funny because now people are doing like I, actual isolation training and they, we have people who say, Oh, I want this to do pandemic training. I said, what is pandemic <laughs> training? This is individual training. Players need to do this anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it's funny. yeah. So I mean, but, but I'm sure, um, you know, a lot of people are doing that and, um, I've personally used the app before, which, um, I, I haven't touched a ball in, way too long. So, um, maybe I'll, I'll need to get back. You got to get that. back in your training. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well again, all these things, I think we could talk about for a long time, but, um, Yael Averbush West, I appreciate you coming on, kicking back here and, and talking about, um, you know, a, a wide range of topics really, obviously, and, and a, a lot of important topics. So thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the platform and for asking, uh, some difficult questions. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Kicking Back, a podcast by The Equalizer. If you like what you heard, and we certainly hope you did, please go ahead and rate and review this pod. The more you do that, the easier it is for other people to discover this show and hear compelling stories from some of the most interesting people in women's soccer. Keep an eye out for our next episode when we kick it with our latest guest.